Please join me, Donna Bear Stein, in welcoming tonight's very special Tefera Talk Show guest, award-winning poet and creative writing professor, Dorianne Lowe. Dorianne's most recent books of poems include The Book of Men, winner of the Patterson Poetry Prize, and Facts About the Moon, recipient of the Oregon Book Award and shortlisted for the Lenora Marshall Poetry Prize. She is also the author of the books Smoke, Awake, and What We Carry, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Dorianne's work has received three Best American Poetry Prizes, a Pushcart Prize, two fellowships from the National Endowment for the, for the Arts, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. She teaches poetry and directs the MFA program at North Carolina State University and is founding faculty at Pacific University's Low Residency MFA program. A warm welcome indeed to this tru- truly powerful poet, Dorianne Lowe. Hey, hi. Hey, hey do- hi, Dorianne. Thank you so much for sharing part of your evening with us tonight. So I look forward to our talk. And as I mentioned in our emails, I have just really enjoyed being immersed in your poetry again, and um, uh, including the, the the new poem that you had sent. Um, and in fact, I used one of your earlier poems, Anti-Lamentation, uh, as a prompt in the poemathon that Teferit has offered this month. And oh, I thought that, yeah, and they loved it. They loved the poem, and they loved using it as a prompt. Um, and I thought we might start our chat tonight um, with you reading that poem, if you would. Sure. It's from uh, the Book of Men, so it's mm-hmm. a, a newer poem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, it's a, you know, a lamentation is a, you know, a sad lament but this is an anti-lamentation. Anti-lamentation. Regret nothing. Not the cruel novels you read to the end just to find out who killed the cook. Not the insipid movies that made you cry in the dark in spite of your intelligence, your sophistication. Not the lover you left quivering in a hotel parking lot. The one you beat to the punchline, the door or the one who left you in your red dress and shoes, the ones that crimped your toes. Don't regret those. Not the nights you called God names and cursed your mother, sunk like a dog in the living room couch, chewing your nails and crushed by loneliness. You were meant to inhale those smoky nights over a bottle of flat beer, to sweep stuck onion rings across the dirty restaurant floor, to wear the frayed coat with its loose buttons, its pockets full of struck matches. You've walked those streets a thousand times, and still you end up here. Regret none of it, not one of the wasted days you wanted to know nothing, when the lights from the carnival rides were the only stars you believed in, loving them for their uselessness, not wanting to be saved. You've traveled this far on the back of every mistake, ridden in dark-eyed and morose, but calm as a house after the TV set has been pitched out the window, harmless as a broken axe, emptied of expectation. Relax. 
don't bother remembering any of it. Let's stop here under the lit sign on the corner and watch all the people walk by. Thank you. Um, A beautiful poem, and as I was listening to you read it now and as I reread it earlier, um, I I was really struck by how the last two lines of this poem um, in my thinking provide this really clear statement of what so many of your poems do, um, that, that they begin with something very personal in the poet's life and shine a light of awareness on it, um, like that the lit, the lit sign on the corner, and then mm-hmm. expand out into observations of the external world mm-hmm. so that it's something personal in the poet's life and then it's also something more. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, well, that's what you hope for. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's probably and what I, brings a poem from the notebook onto the page. You know, some just mm-hmm. belong in the notebook. Others scream to be let off the page. Mhm. And as you as you mentioned, this came from the Book of Men, which is your most recent book, and I love the title of that, and I was wondering what prompted you to write a book of poems <laughs> um about men. Well, I know a lot of men. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um I've always been fascinated by men and um and so you know I had all these poems and actually I had not thought about it in terms of the fact that I had written a number of poems about men but my husband um one of the many men I have loved um is, is said you know I want you to uh send me all your new poems because if something happens to your computer uh, you're going to be mad at me. So just send them all to me, and I will print them out and put them in a file and have them on my computer, you know. So he was just watching out for me. And so I said, fine, and sent them to him. And he disappeared, you know, into his little office for uh, a couple of hours. And, and finally I went out there and said, what are you doing? And he said, I, I think you have a book of poems. And I said, oh, really? And what's the title of this book? And he said, it's called The Book of Men. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and I How said, helpful. That's great. Really? <laughs> he said, yes, it's in two sections. And You know, he just started telling me how he had put this book together from the poems he had um, taken, you know, um, off of the file. And to me, it just seemed like a bunch of poems. But when he started reading through them, um, he realized there was this theme and so, really, I have my husband to thank for this. I've tried to get him to do this with my next book, but it's not working. I think it was just one of those serendipitous things that happened. So. Uh huh. And your husband's name is Joseph Miller, who, who's Joseph also Clark, a poet. Yeah. And yeah. and do you do you share your poems with each other on a daily basis, or? Well, if we Are write on a daily basis, <laughs> which is okay. But um, when we do write a poem, yeah, we're the first ones that we tend to show it to. And uh, we're each other's best critics and each other's best um, supporters. You know, we love each other's work, and um, we're also very hard on each other. So it's kind of a perfect relationship. That's fabulous. That's so. That's wonderful. Um, and, and the first poem in the Book of Men, uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Metz, I love... Uh, for many reasons, um, and I'm curious about um, the seed of that poem. But but one of the things that really struck me, um, I didn't ask you to be prepared to read that particular poem, but in that poem there's a staff sergeant at, at 
a Starbucks in an airport, and he's gets he's standing in line, he's waiting for his luggage, he's hailing a bus, and we see this one man making the movements that one makes when one's doing those ordinary things, and yet somehow, in just the lines of that poem, um, we know we're so so aware of the whole world that this individual is a part of that we know the battles he's been in, um, both internal and external and the demons that he's fought. Somehow you managed to do that, which is just incredible. Um, And I'm wondering, did you, is this someone you knew, or is it someone you saw at an airport? I'm just curious about. Yeah, this was a a man that I saw at the airport, I believe it was in Spokane, and um, I was flying out and just sitting outside, and I noticed him. He was beautiful, you know. And um, and then I saw him later in the Starbucks line, or maybe it was the other way. First I saw him at Starbucks, then I saw him later. And I just right then started writing about him. There was something about him that was very compelling. And I think partially it had to do with the fact that he was just so exquisitely made. You know, he was just the perfect, he was like the platonic, you know, male standing there. And, uh, and that tripped me into it. And... Um, I knew nothing about him, and in fact, all I knew was his name. It said Staff Sergeant Metz, I noticed. And so for years after that, I would watch the McNeil-Lair News Hour, what used to be called the McNeil-Lair News Hour, and look for his name. I was always terrified that I would see his name uh, come up as one of the war dead. And um, I tried to look him up, but there are a number of Staff Sergeant Metz, so I would never know who he was, but I felt very close to him for some reason, and I think the poem details that in terms of moving into my relationship with my brother and my boyfriend, who were both in Vietnam. So I think one of the lines that most moved me and gestures that moved me when I was watching him was him talking into his cell phone, and it was cold, and I could see him breathing into his hands. And... um, there was something about the fact that he was so alive, but dressed to die, basically. You know, I mean, yes. just to accept the possibility of death. And uh, so that was very moving to me. So did you have a notebook with you in the airport there or your laptop? Yes, I did. Or? Yeah, okay. I always have my notebook with me. I have about seven different shapes and sizes of notebooks that I carry with me at all times one that fits in my back pocket, one that fits in my purse, one that fits in the bathroom, or? one in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, pardon? Are they moleskin notebooks or? Some of them, yeah. Oh, some yeah. Are mo- mo- a lot of them are moleskins, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Neat. Um, we also used um, one of the prompts in our poemathon from the book that you co-authored with um, Kim Adonisio, uh-huh. uh-huh. and that book is called The Poet's Companion, A Guide to the Pleasures of Writing poet, Poetry, right. and it's a fabulous book for poets at any level, um, filled with prompts, and um, uh, I, I, uh, we're also offering that book as a gift to some of the poets who participated in the poemathon. So that 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 long intro is leading me into the fact that that you've taught in a lot of situations and you have 
um, gathered prompts um, from your own teaching experience at the University of Oregon, Pacific University, North Carolina State, and elsewhere. And I think you also taught in prison populations. Sure, yeah. Uh huh. I taught for um, years in, in the schools from K, you know, <laughs> kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. So um, I've taught every possible age group and demographic, uh-huh. I think. Uh-huh. Do you what I'm I'm curious like what you particularly look for or try to encourage in your students. Well, what I look for is or just what, or what you think creative writing classes can offer people. Yeah, um well, I think anyone can benefit from paying attention to their lives through language, you know. Mm-hmm. And um so maybe some of the students I teach aren't even necessarily or don't plan to become poets per se, but they welcome the opportunity to sit and be quiet and process the world through the beauty of language and image and sound and, you know, try to make a shape out of their lives. I think that that, it's like any other art, you know, um, it's an opportunity to make some kind of shape that you put into the world as a response, you know, to its mystery. And um, so I don't know that I'm looking for anything in particular. I'm mostly just trying to convey my love for that. And there are those who who really, that speaks to them, and so they continue on with it. Um, And I do use these kinds of prompts um, in my classroom all the time, and my students love them. They love having language to start with, you know. I'll give them ten words, a phrase, a color, a time of year. My husband and I do these exercises. Many of my poems have come from prompts that my husband and I give to each other. And, um, you know, if you were a painter, you would have a palette, you know, Mm -hmm. and that palette would be filled with color. And you would choose among those colors in order to make something. And so it's really the same thing with a poet. They, you know, have a palette of words, and they look at them and they say, gee, you know, how could these words create something? And um, so it's not, it's to, it, there are tools as poets. Mm-hmm. And you talk actually in the Poets Companion, you talk about how there are craft tools, and then there's also understanding the process, what you call the day-to-day struggle to articulate experience. Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm curious, like the difference in your teaching experiences, both in a university and and say in in a prison situation. Do you do you? Um, I, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, I think that in any situation, you know, probably the first thing I'm going to do is try to get that group of people to bond, to feel comfortable with each other, to feel that they can you know, be intimate with each other and um, and allow themselves to say things that they wouldn't otherwise say, which is just another definition for poetry, right? It's the things that we say that we have no words for, really, you know, mm-hmm. the things we feel that we have no words for. And um, so the first thing is comfort level, and that goes across all, you know, all the way up to the graduate level, you know, um, I probably focus on craft more at the graduate level 
because these are people who have decided to devote their lives to poetry versus at the prison level where people really are just trying to find a way to express themselves and find, you know, and of course we talk about craft. We talk about how an image can convey a feeling, a tone, a mood, you know. Um, We talk about those kinds of issues. You can't avoid craft when you talk about poetry. But I don't focus on it as much as I focus on more of the raw emotions, the stories, the feelings, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. When it gets to the graduate level, then we start tearing things apart. Um, Mm -hmm. We tear the engine apart and look at each single piece and see how Mm -hmm. each one fits into the other and how it makes the whole thing work. Mm -hmm. Usually you don't have time for that either. If you're going in and doing the prisons, you know, you're only there for a day, maybe a few days, maybe a week, you know, um, I never taught over a long period of time there. It was a visit. It was a guest thing. So you can only do so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and can I add, I know that Philip Levine was not only a great friend of yours, but a a mentor. And um, in just a minute, I'd like you to ask, ask you to read another poem. But I'm, I, I was curious about when you first met him and, um, Yeah, I uh, actually I met him through my poetry. Um, I knew his poetry very well, and we both published a poem. Uh, well, I published a couple of poems. He published an interview in a little magazine called Five Fingers Review, which came out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. in fact, Kim Adonizio was one of the editors of that magazine and had asked me for some poems. Well, Philippine got them a copy of the magazine his interview was in, looked through it, read my poems, and wrote a postcard to Five Fingers and said, please tell this woman, Dorianne Locks, that I like her poems, you know. And so I asked for his address, and I wrote him a postcard back and said, thank you so much for noticing my poems. And he wrote me back, and he wrote me a long legal pad, you know, um, sized letter saying how much he liked them and why he liked them and who should I read and where should, you know, and just this incredible letter from one poet to another. And um, and then he offered to look at more of my poems, and eventually he asked me for a manuscript and sent it off to uh, Boa Editions, which accepted it within the week. So oh, he, I had not even met him when all this happened. I didn't meet him until months later. Um, mm-hmm. So this all happened over the mail Snail mail, back in the day. Snail mail, right. Yeah. Can I ask you please to read my own Phil Levine? Yeah, well, Phil was a a great, great mentor of mine. He was never my teacher, and I wish he had been, but um, uh, his poems were my teachers. And uh, this poem is um, after a W.S. Merwin poem, um, and it's... uh, it's patterned after a poem called Berryman, and the title is taken from Philippine's essay entitled My Own John Berryman, because yes. Berryman was his teacher. And in turn, it's based on a Thomas Wyatt poem called My Own John Points. Well, so this a real is lineage. that yes. tradition, that lineage, and it's called My Own Philippine. Mm-hmm. What he told me, I will tell you. There was a war on. It seemed we had lived through too many to name, to number. There was no arrogance about him, no vanity. 
only the strong backs of his words pressed against the tonnage of a page. His suggestion to me was that hard work was the order of each day. When I asked again, he said it again, pointing it out twice. His muse, if he had one, was a window filled with a brick wall, the left-hand corner of his mind, a hand lined with grease and sweat, literal things. Before I knew him, I was unknown. I drank deeply from his knowledge, a cup he gave me again and again, filled with water, clear river water. He was never old and never grew older, though the days passed and the poems marched forth, and they were his words only. No others were needed. He advised me to wait, to hold true to my vision, to speak in my own voice, to say the thing straight out. There was the whole day about him. The greatest thing, he said, was presence, to be yourself in your own time, to stand up, that poetry was precision, raw precision, truth and compassion, genius. I had hardly begun. I asked, how did you begin? He said, I began in a tree, in Lucerne, in a machine shop, in an open field, start anywhere. He said, if you don't write, it won't get written. No tricks, no magic about it. He gave me his gold pen. He said, what's mine is yours. Thank you. That's so beautiful. Thank you. And he did give me his gold pen, and I I still own it, and I still write with it. Lovely. Um, I also think um, I think I read in in, in uh, another interview with you that uh, a poem from Neruda had set you on the path of writing poetry, and and I also wanted to mention another. There's a line from one of your poems that says, "We know nothing of how it all works, uh, what heat draws us to our life's work or keeps us from a dream until it's nothing but a blister we scratch in our sleep," and. Uh, I, I guess I'm curious, like um, um, about more. I wanted to know more about what drew you to your life's work, and what you had to do to make sure that writing didn't become a dream deferred yeah. for you. Yeah, um, I started writing very young. My mother was a pianist, and she played piano. Nothing um, professional, but mm-hmm. um, she had learned to play piano in the convent school that she was raised in and it was her most prized possession and um, I think listening to music day in and day out really taught me a lot about phrasing about um, an unspoken language you know and um, and I was never talented so much musically um, but I felt that I could put music into language and so I wrote poems that that had rhythm and rhymed and, you know, like the poems of the very young often do. And uh, that was my way, I think, of making music, like my mother. And I read, as she read, um, viciously, voraciously. <laughs> and, um, and I think I just wanted to respond to the things that I had read that had um, 
caused me such joy and such grief, you know, um, that it opened worlds for me um, as a child. And um, I never stopped reading. I never stopped writing, um, although I never showed it to anyone. And it wasn't until my first, my daughter was born, um, and I had been, she was, I think, about four or five years old, and I decided that I wanted to go back to school and do something with this writing that I always did. Now, in my mind, I thought that I was going to um, become an editor or a journalist or something practical. Um, uh, but uh, I went back to school and took a creative writing class, and um, one of my teachers told me that she thought that I should write poetry. You know, she said, you're very, you know, well, that was one of the assignments for the class, and and she kind of encouraged me, and then I had another teacher along the way encourage me, and um, and then eventually I uh, got into a class with poet Steve Cowett. Um, Philip mm-hmm. Levine recently passed away, um, who was a great mentor to me, and Steve Cowett was really my very first poetry teacher that um, opened me up to the world of poetry, and I mean the world, you know, poets not only from the United States, but... Um, from all over the the world. One of those poets was Pablo Neruda. And he read a poem in class. It was a night class that I took. I was waitressing at the time. And um, my girlfriend would babysit for me, and I would go out for a couple of hours and take this community college uh, workshop in poetry. And he read a poem called Letters to Begin. Yes, Mesa Junior College in San Diego, California. And... Mm -hmm. uh, He read Letter to Miguel, and it was a beautiful poem about an exiled poet who was writing to another exiled poet about his his fear, his joys, his loneliness, and um, you know, and it it made me cry. I mean, I just wept by the end of it, and I thought that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. At that point, I thought I'm serious about this. I want to make people cry. That's Mm -hmm. what I want to do. And did you, um, so you said now you don't write every day, but can you tell us a little bit more about um, the um, the habit that you've built up over the years? Or Yeah, or? yeah I mean, I you know, it's always been uh, piecemeal for me because I've always worked full-time, I had a child, um, you know, and so I would just write when I had a chance and often that was when I was waiting for my daughter to get out of school or when she was having a play date or when she was taking a nap or I'd get up early in the morning um, I would just find spots of time um, Mm -hmm. to write in and uh, it went on like that for quite some time until finally I uh, had a chance to go away to a writer's retreat and write for an entire uh month, you know, and do nothing but write, which terrified me. I mean, I wasn't even sure how to do that. And uh but then I began to realize, yes, I can make this a daily practice and and um started trying to get up every day at the same time and write uh convinced that if I was in the same place, same time every day the muse would find me. You would know, <laughs> know how to find her. me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um but life still would interfere, you know. I mean, I always worked and always had to um you know, make a make allowances and so 
then I decided, well, you know, I seem to do this no matter what. I mean, you know, even when I don't have time, I find time somewhere in the day to write. And so then I kind of lightened up on myself and, and just said, look, when you can find time, you'll do it. And and when you can't, you'll do other things. Um, I think the other realization came to me. I was so um, convinced that I had to do this thing and I had to succeed at it um, uh, that it was, you know, I, I felt like it could take over my life, right, you know. And mm-hmm. and I thought, well, you know, if I had a choice between poetry and my life, which would I choose? And I thought, I'd choose my life, <laughs> you know. I mean, I don't have poetry without my life. And so then I stopped resenting the fact that, you know, I had to find time to write. Um, and it became more just kind of a part of my the way I am, you know, whenever yeah. I get a chance, I'm writing. When I don't have a chance, I'm living, and that's fine too. That's right. And you don't. So again, like going back to anti-lamentation, you don't. You don't regret it. Um, the no. times that you're no. not able to it's wasted time with your notebook <laughs> and pen. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, that's why I carry a note me at all times because I never yeah, know multiple notebooks. It, it, yeah. yeah. Um, also, in, in the poem Dark Charms, there's a line that um, eventually the future shows up everywhere, which I love because because the other thing that I see in your poems is this is this fabulous layering of the past, the present, and the future. Um, there's one poem where uh, I think it's late night TV um, where a boy shows up in the room, but you also are referring back to when he's a toddler and also when he's born, and uh-huh. there's all this back, you know. There's this, again, it's like past, present, and future being stacked on top of each other rather than oh. linear. linear. Um, uh, and and I love that, and I, I guess I'm curious about that. Is that something that's changed as you've aged, or I hope that's not too direct a question, but did did you have that sense when you were younger, I guess, is my yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm not. I mean, I'm listening to you, thinking, "Oh, isn't that interesting? I had no idea I did that." <laughs> That's a good exercise. I'll make that into an exercise for my students. Let's layer past, present, and future. Um, n- I don't think that I was really aware, you know, um, that I was doing that in the poems. Although, as soon as you say it, I recognize it immediately. And, in a lot of um, them, it is in a lot. Yeah. Of them, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think it's a very close reader. Thank you. (laughs) I think it's something that really just makes the richness. I mean, that that brings the richness there. So um, that, and also this reconciliation of opposites, which Tiferet is a Hebrew word, which means reconciliation of opposites. And and Mm -hmm. in so many of your poems, there's this kind of unexpected um, combination of things. Like in Superman, you talk about dirty bombs and or dirty dishes and bombs, right? Or dishes that need yeah. to be washed and, and dirty bombs. Um and and there's another line about toward the place of dreaming and fractions, which is kinda of like this, you know, meeting of um right and left brain in a way. So um I, I, that also struck me and, and I think um the lines in this last poem that I'd like you to read this evening, Sunday, um, because the ferret is a multi-faith journal, and and because it uh, uh, you know has this immense emotional richness to it, um, um, I'd like to ask you to read 
that to us. Um, yeah, and this is an earlier poem. I mean, you know, it's a poem from my first book. And mm-hmm. I think that in a way that's the project of every poet is to try to reconcile, you know, those opposing forces that we live with daily, you know, um, the horror and the beauty, um, the suffering and the joy, you know. it's How can those things exist, coexist? Yeah. Um, and we don't know. That's the great mystery. And uh, so, you know, um, my faith is that somehow poetry will make those things live together in a way that is beautiful, you know. Yeah. So um, this is called Sunday, and it's a poem after Wallace Stevens, who wrote a gorgeous poem called Sunday Morning. We sit on the front lawn, an igloo cooler between us, so hot the sky is white. Above gravel rooftops, a spire, a shimmering cross. You pick up the swollen hose, press your thick thumb into the silver nozzle. A fan of water sprays rainbows over the dying lawn. Hummingbirds sparkle green, bellies powdered with pollen from the bottle brush tree. The bells of 12 o'clock, our neighbors return from church. I bow my head as they ease clean cars into neat garages, file through screen doors in lace gloves, white hats, Bible black suits. The smell of barbecue rises, hellish, thick, and sweet. I envy their weekly peace of mind. They know where they're going when they die. Charcoal fluid cans contract in the sun, I want to be Catholic, a Jew, maybe a Methodist. I want to kneel for days on rough wood. Their kids appear in bright shorts, bathing suits, their rubber thongs flapping down the hot cement. They could be anyone's children. They have God inside their tiny bodies. My God, look how they float like birds, to the scissor, scissor, scissor of lawn sprinklers. Down the street, a tinny radio bleats. The sun bulges above our house like an eye. I don't want to die. I never want to leave this block. I envy everything, all of it. I know it's a sin. I love how you can shift in your chair, take a deep drink of gold beer, curl your toes under, and hum. Thank you. Lovely. Yeah, so and, that's after a Wallace Stevens poem where he he ponders, you know, how does the faith, how do the faithless live in a world of believers, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was my response. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, there is a review that I found online by Edward Byrne, um, and just as we as we close here, um, I just wanted to mention this. He talks about how your poetic voice carries readers from beginning images to final lines, resulting in an extraordinarily gratifying conclusion that provokes further contemplation long after the last word of the poem. And I know... Even though this interview is ending, I know I'm going to be living with your poems 
more intimately again after um, re-enjoying them. And and I um, trust that our audience will, too. And if they have not read you before, I highly encourage them to do so. And if you could let um, our listeners know if you have upcoming readings or um, also the URL of your website so they can find out more about you there, yeah. that would be great. Yeah. Great, yeah. I mean, I have. Uh, I'm going soon to um, Spokane, Washington, yet again, to read mm-hmm. at a community college there, and then the Hugo House in Seattle, um, mm-hmm. where I'll be giving a talk on the marriage of music and meaning, and uh, a workshop. So when those is that? Are my, and that's coming up. I think May sixth, seventh, and eighth. I'll be okay. in on the West Coast. And your website is your name. Yeah, dorianlocks.org or something, or .net or .com. Or, I mean, if you just put Dorian Locks, it'll come up. So. Yes, we, yes, we have it in the chat window, too. So, yeah. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for your poems. It's been a real pleasure, yeah. Dorian. Hey, Donna, thank you so much. It's really wonderful what you do to get poetry out into the world. And oh. um, I thank you for it. Yours are the poems we want to get out there, so thank you for that. (laughs) Thank thank you for creating Thank your wonderful staff. Great job. All right, I will. Take care. Have a good rest of the evening. Thank you. Good night. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's Tefera Talk. The show will be archived and accessible for later listening on our website at www.teferritjournal.com. You're invited to join our global community of writers there and to subscribe to our literary magazine, Teferit Journal. While on the website, you can also order a copy of our first Teferit Talk book of transcribed interviews with poets Robert Pinsky and Ed Hirsch, writing coach Julia Cameron, and more. Special thanks for this and all of our shows, to R. Jeffries, Udo Hintz, and Melissa Studdard. Please join us at DeFerrit Talk next month when Melissa Studdard interviews John Tribble and Allison Joseph. In the meantime, all of us at DeFerrit wish you and everyone in Baltimore, Nepal, Yemen, and so many other places in the world a meaningful and creative peace.